welcome to truedemocracy.global's podcast. Today, once again, we're joined by Saeed Hamzavi to continue our discussion about the process of getting the drug approved by the FDA. We had a nice discussion previously, but there are a few follow-up questions I wanted to ask, and Saeed was kind enough to agree to come back on. So with the truedemocracy.global podcast, we're looking into systems of democracy, the technology that supports it, as well as various systems of authority. Our hope is that through understanding and applying shared knowledge and evolving technology, that we can find ways to build to trust, encourage constructive collaboration, which may bring about greater freedom for humanity. And a true democracy where the power stems truly from the people, everyone has a voice in collaboration with their fellow men and women of any background. We live in an unprecedented time in history with technologies that have never before existed that may help bring about this vision. Saeed has received his master's and PhD degrees in chemistry from Georgetown University in Washington, DC. He did his postdoctoral work at Duke University in Durham, Durham, North Carolina. He has been in the pharmaceutical and biotechnology industry doing research development and quality control for over 30 years. Presently, he is at Genentech Roche here in South San Francisco. I'm interested in this conversation as looking at a system of authority, the FDA, and begin to understand its effectiveness and envision ways technologies such as blockchain might make it more effective. Saeed, I had a few follow-up questions. Thank you for being here again. Thank you for your invitation. Glad to be uh, on your podcast again. Yeah. Okay. So a few things I wanted to um, follow up on. One was just a simple question, uh, clarification. You said something like it took 500,000 to 800, uh, excuse me, 500 million to $800 million to get a drug approved. I was curious if that included the cost to cost of the, the drugs that didn't make it all the way through. Obviously, they would have some cost. Yes, of course. And, you know, the 800 million is for, you know, what we call, quote unquote, small molecule pharmaceuticals. But for um, biotech, it goes all the way to over $2 billion. As far as, you know, that cost is uh, concerned, yes, it includes all the activities that goes into activities that uh, started with uh, drugs that failed. Okay. And uh, yeah. That was just a simple little clarification to start us off. By by the way, I want to congratulate you. So I understand you did get your your drug approved that you were working on, right? Yes, we got approval from the FDA uh, about uh, three weeks ago. And uh, that was a big... uh, challenge for us and it was a big uh, gain for the company because this was the first time that we had actually a device involved uh, with a drug that we have and essentially five component device that were approved so it was pretty complicated system that we had to uh, work with the agency and uh, I can say that uh, the agency was actually very impressed with the design oh, nice. and technology and um, we were very pleased and everybody is actually very happy and you know main thing is really for the patients the goal of everything that uh, we do at Genentech uh, really the target is 
what patient needs and mm-hmm. really all the hard work that goes into these activities really the it is the patient in mind all the time okay and how what's the process of deciding what kind of drugs to develop how does that process come about well of course it is, first of all, it is within the expertise of the uh, pharma company by the word by technology company that, that they have at their disposal. And then the need in the uh, community and in the country, in the world. So that is something that uh, uh, all of these come together and define what kind of drug you want to uh, develop and how successful you are with that development. Mm-hmm. So it comes together, essentially, it is the expertise that you have within the uh, company. And the larger the company, the diversity of the expertise that you have available to you is more. For example, Genentech for a long time has been the leader in the oncology cancer drugs uh, okay. for, for, from the beginning of the uh, company coming into existence. So that has been one area of uh, the company's success. So we have had many successes in uh, multiple different kind of mm, uh, cancer uh, drugs that we have been able to uh, bring to market. But of course, mm, as time has gone, we have uh, moved into other areas such as neurology and this latest uh, product that we got approval for is um, for AMD, uh, which is um, macular degeneration disease, which is an eye disease. So this is a new drug for, this is a new technology, this is the new area. And uh, so this is essentially diversification of our resources and capabilities. Mm-hmm. And uh, that brings all of this to uh, fruition. Do you, do you want to ex- uh, describe the technology that you developed? Oh, okay. This essentially uh, what this drug does, first of all, the nature of the drug is, uh, you know, especially this is in the aged uh, population uh, that... Uh, essentially the uh, excessive growth of uh, blood vessels in the back of the eye causes the retina to start to detach. And, you know, the patient starts losing their eyesight. Mm -hmm. So what this drug does, uh, the function of the drug is to, uh, it is an antibody which binds itself to the cells and prevents those cells from growing those vessels. Mm-hmm. And uh, it up, up to a point, essentially, it prevents from the progression of the disease. And at the same time, it, is, uh, it can potentially help to kind of reverse uh, the uh, disease itself. Now, what, one thing which is unique about this uh, system and the devices, Previously, we had patient had to go to the eye doctor and to get injection once a month, right directly into the in vitreal part of the eye. So you can imagine uh, how 
hard it is for the patient. And these are old patients. Mm -hmm. So this is difficult for them. And usually they would miss uh, all these appointments and eventually the compliance was the problem and they would lose their vision. So what we came up with is this device, essentially this device, which is like eight millimeter in length, the size of a grain of rice uh -huh. that you implant into the eye. One time it is a very minor, minor surgery, half an hour that this surgeon uh, in the eye doctor office performs that and insert the device into the eye and refills and fills the uh, uh, device, which has a very tiny container mm -hmm. and uh, with a drug, about 20 microliter volume that it has. And through a uh, passive infusion, this drug is released and uh, it can last up to six months and even beyond, you know, clinical studies we have had on the average, at least six months that the patient uh, benefits from the introduction of the drug into their eye. So essentially a patient does not have to come to the office and get this injection maximum twice a year. Mm -hmm. And yeah, uh, after the first injection, after six months, she, a patient comes in and the physician refills essentially the uh, um, material which was gone used up and um, and the injection is done through a septa through that device and not into the eye anymore. So the patient does not have to suffer from all the uh, difficulties and pain and all of that, that they have to, uh, as a result of direct injection into the eye. And so it's likely to come to the appointments and and yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, it was very interesting that we had a patient who invited, you know, this was after the approval of the drug. We invited one of the patients who was on the clinical study, he was a um, grandfather. He was so excited about the result that he had got uh, because he was losing his vision. He was excited by seeing his grandchildren, family, and he can have a normal life. And this is giving somebody's life back, practically speaking. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it makes you so um, happy and gratified that, that no matter how hard you work, how long you work, uh, you help patients and save their vision. And of course, the other situation, their lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So back to the decision about uh, how, what to develop, does the industry come to you and say, can you develop something for this? No, no. no. Again, again, that is, um, again, it goes back, as I indicated, the expertise of the company who mm -hmm. we have on the staff, you know, a company like Genentech and Roche, which is, of course, now we are part of Roche, which uh, 90,000 uh, employees. So we have diversity of expertise uh, that the company has from, you know, Roche originally was pharmaceutical company. That means small molecules. And they have, as you, you must have heard about Roche, that they have hundreds of drugs that they have, um, you know, developed and uh, they have on the market. 
And Genentech, which is a biotech, when they acquired the company many years ago, 15 or so ago, uh, added to their portfolio but as a biotech uh, company and different kinds of indications that uh, Genentech is able and capable of providing and delivering, which, you know, again, like it, the very first drug that Genentech came up with was insulin. Oh, yeah. You told me that story. Yeah. Insulin, you know, you had mm-hmm. in the past, you had to get the insulin from the mm, pig uh, pancreas. Yeah. Sacrificed many pigs to do that. However, with the technology, we were able to manufacture it in the uh, facility and um, provide it much easier and cheaper uh, to the patients. Yeah. And then we used that technology and grew into oncology and uh, multiple other areas that we are active in. Okay. And uh, you said Genentech acquired Roche? No, Roche acquired Genentech. Oh, Roche. Okay. okay. Yeah, Genentech is, as, as I, if I remember, uh, if I mentioned that, is the frontier in creation of biotechnology. 45 years ago, there was no biotechnology uh, existing and Genentech in South San Francisco was created 45 years ago and uh, more than 45 years ago, essentially. And uh, so the insulin creation was the first incident of that was the first thing that, you know, in order to show that the technology work, that is what we were able to market. Yeah. Okay, cool. Right. So I was back to the expertise. It seems to me that there's two areas of expertise that are needed. One is to know what can be made and the other is to know what the needs are. Yeah, that of course, you know, you have the expertise and at the same time, uh, you know, the uh, companies have um, scientists and physicians on staff that they are studying. We have, as I indicated, discovery group that because of those expertise that we have, we know there are specific diseases out in the uh, society and uh, their needs. And depending on the needs, the extent of the need of these diseases, uh, of course, you try to uh, attract scientists who have expertise in that specific area mm-hmm. and then uh, work on that and come up with a uh, plan, how you're gonna tackle that problem, how you can solve that problem, and then start to develop into drug from that point on. And of course, a lot of work goes into that uh, in order to come up with the right approach. And um, like in the small molecules, you have to look at hundreds and hundreds of molecules, uh, synthetic molecules, and you know, you know, treat the cells that they have that particular disease and see if they have any positive impact. And if you find a, some of them, a combination of some of them, then you, that would be your starting point to develop further work and then develop the, the drug that mm-hmm. could potentially help uh, provide the uh, cure for that disease. Mm-hmm. You, you're more interested in, it seems, uh, to uh, cure a disease rather than prevent it. Or do you work on prevention as well? 
Well, it is, you know, the mostly the job of the uh, pharma companies and biotech companies are to cure mm -hmm. because prevention is totally a different story. I mean, uh, as a society, you really have to look at multiple factors to, to for prevention, you know, diet, uh -huh. and the food industry, uh, you know, food industry to me is the culprit for the source of many of people's diseases, all the processed food that we are uh, force feeding people and fast food that we have, you go on the market, you go on a grocery store shelf and you see package after package of food material and they're sitting there for months and months and months. How could food last? Natural food should not last more than maximum a week, mm -hmm. maximum. While these stuff that are in the boxes containers, different containers are sitting there for months and nothing happens to them. So why is that? Because they have gone through so much processes, additives, chemicals that taken all the nutrients out. And then in order to make up the loss of nutrients, they put tons of other additives to it in order to make up for those losses. What happens? What you are digesting is not really what your body needs. Mm -hmm. It's missing a lot of that. And we get all these uh, unhealthy oil, uh, that you know, vegetable oil that everybody cooks with. And all of those are detrimental to our cells. You know, cells have, are regenerating continuously. I mean, your guts are essentially the gut, your gut is being replaced almost every week. Mm -hmm. All your intestines, the lining of your intestine are completely replaced every week. Imagine that. Yeah. So they need all the nutrients, the right nutrients for those cells to reproduce and get rid of the old ones and uh, replace them with the healthy cells. Now, if you feed them with the junk, the result is they're gonna have unhealthy cells. Unhealthy cells, result in unhealthy body, all the unhealthy functions that we have. So going back to your question, prevention really is not the job of the pharmaceutical companies or uh, biotech companies. It is the society's uh -huh. uh, role that you really have, people have to get get the right education. The government has to come and play a role and Government is actually a culprit to this because they support uh, all these products that are coming out, you know, adding added sugar. Sugar is a poison essentially to, to, mm -hmm. to, to our health. What about the FDA itself? Don't they approve? FDA, what, no, FDA's role again is whatever comes to market is not going to be poison to you. Poison. Well, it, it is not. Yes, it is not going to be, uh, you know, the material that goes into food. Of course, you know, they are all 
originally the origin of the mm-hmm. natural material, but after going through those, all those processes, um, FDA cannot, you know, come in and say, yeah, uh, this is not healthy anymore. And uh, kind of their hands are tied in that respect because uh, I guess we have to have more regulation within the government as a whole. Mm-hmm. What is healthy? Fast food is really not good for us. All these oils are not good for sugar. Mm-hmm. Everything that you touch in the store, ketchup you use on your French fries, is has tons of sugar. You know, there is no way you can avoid sugar. Mm-hmm. And sugar is one of the worst enemies of your body. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, the definition of poison is uh, is in question, I guess, because yeah, it's a it, relative it, one. Yes. Yeah. And, and so somewhere there's a line drawn that because I think you did say that sugar is a poison to us. Essentially. Yeah. yeah. I mean, especially artificial sugar, the mm. additive sugar that we use. Our body, of course, needs sugar, but at the right amount, mm-hmm. from the right source, and not so much of it. Not, so, I mean, I guess the statistics says we people in this country take about 150 pounds of sugar a year. Wow. I, I mean, this is uh, unimaginable. Mm-hmm. Without, without knowing that you are doing it. You go to a restaurant and you, you, your dressing is uh, loaded with sugar. Your ketchup is loaded with sugar. Um, anything that comes out of a container or a can is uh, full of sugar, added sugar that was not supposed to be there. Add, added sugar. Added sugar. Yeah. yeah, just read the labels on any packaged food that you uh, pick up from the grocery store. Yeah, I do. Yeah, and, and, that should be a habit for you and do that. And I, the only I, way, I mean, to me, it's, uh, I mean, now people are realizing many of our diseases are stemming from our food, mm-hmm. food that we are eating. You know, we have a gut bacteria that are bacteria that we have about half of our body weight is bacteria. You might have, you might have heard about that. Microbiome, essentially, your skin, your lungs, your uh, majority of them are are in your gut. And they all need the appropriate food in order to uh, live in harmony among each other. And uh, all of them, actually, many of these bacteria that we have in our gut, make many of the chemicals that your body needs in order to function properly. Even many of the material chemicals that your brain uses mm-hmm. are generated in, in your gut by those bacteria. If you feed them the wrong food, they, the, the wrong bacteria are going to grow and those bacteria that are are helpful to you, they are going to suffer. And as a result, we, our health is going to suffer. You know, one of the diseases we usually see among the uh, general po- public is immune, uh, other immune problems, which, you know, right. we have. 
many of these diseases which cause inflammation, a leaky gut, and um, allergies that we have. And uh, all of these diseases are as a result of the type of food that we eat. And as a result, we are weakening our good bacteria and uh, strengthening the uh, nasty bacteria or viruses. We have all different kinds of, we have E. coli in our gut, but if your diet is right, they are under control. Oh. So, so, yeah. How did you get into the, the cure business rather than the prevention business? You have a lot of passion about it. Well, I mean, that part of it is my personal uh, mm -hmm. uh, interest that I have been trying to educate myself about the health and the food that we take. What are the reasons for so much sickness that we have in our society in this country? And it is something which in all the Western world, essentially, and it is uh, going to other countries as well, which they used to be closer to nature. Mm -hmm. You know, the more industrial we, come, we have become, the farther we have moved away from the nature. And yeah. as a result, and as a result of that, uh, that is the consequences that we are suffering from. Let's, let's put a pin there and maybe come back to that later. Yeah, I and know we kind of diverted a no, little bit. No, it's, it's perfect. It's, I, I, love, I love it. But back to FDA and our last discussion, one thing I realized that we didn't talk about was democracy and, yeah. and you know i'm looking at fda as a system of authority and as far as i can tell there are three three times when democracy isn't important one is when the process takes too long you need to make decisions quick and the other is when a certain expertise is needed and the third is when the majority can oppress a, a minority by voting through democracy. So those are three areas that I see when it's not appropriate. And in the case of the drug manufacturing FDA, it seems like the second one's the case that a certain amount of expertise is needed to make decisions on what to develop and how to go about developing it. Right. Yeah. So, from you know as from that aspect you know fda is an agency that its foundation is based on the science mm -hmm. and information i mean fda uh reviewers or scientists themselves they have come from the industry themselves and uh, they they must have they, they must understand how things work in that industry well let me it is interesting, you know, I can go back again. Um, most of the experience that uh, the agencies have had, health agencies have had because of the length of science in the small molecule that we call pharmaceutical has been for generation, decades, hundreds of years, uh, over 150 years that most of the pharma companies have been uh, developing has been small molecule. 45 years ago, when biotechnology was, uh, came into being, FDA had no experience whatsoever. So when Genentech started coming up with this new technology and the FDA had to approve it, they had to learn mm. 
a very tight learning cave, the real tight learning cave. So we had, the industry had to educate them. Oh. Essentially. Yeah, because it was new. It was new to the whole world. It wasn't Mm -hmm. uh, something that existed there. It was evolving from a point four or five years ago or so, and uh, the FDA and all the other uh, health agencies around the world had to get educated mm-hmm. about this technology. Yeah. Because it was new. It was a state of the art. That would be fascinating to know how that all evolved because there's a possible conflict of interest in the... Well, well no, I guess... Well, conflict of... It might appear as a conflict of interest, uh-huh. but... You know, the principle does not change. Science is science. Okay. Regardless of the technology that you use. So the principle is the same, but the technology is different. So what you have to be able to do is to wrap your mind around the technology. And once you understand the technology, then you would be, uh, you can apply all you have known, you have learned past experience about uh, drug development into this uh, new technology. So uh, the concept of course is you have to have a lot more interaction. We have had to have a lot more interaction with the agency to essentially help them out understand when we perform this analysis, this is the kind of result we get. Mm -hmm. And as long as you're looking at the science, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And they have scientists, they have the capabilities to uh, bring the technology within their, within their system and test them. And FDA has occasionally uh, created their own labs. They do have their own labs and they do perform some of the tests that, that they want to verify for sure. They have done that, they do that, they have that capability. Mm-hmm. But this is again, like any new technology that everybody has to learn they were essentially by having extensive interaction with the uh, manufacturer, with the pharma, with the biotech company, they learned what it was. And of course, at the beginning, there was a lot of struggle, but as they went on, you know, this became more rampant and more scientists in that area were uh, coming into play. And uh, so they are pretty much at the point that they uh, understand what we are dealing with. But at the same time, again, every new uh, technology that is being used, again, it is new for them too. Mm-hmm. And we have to put them through, you know, another layer of, layer of uh, education. You know, we go to other nations like China. China, you know, for example, when we go, we have to go to apply uh, for uh, our drug to be approved there. They had pretty much totally blank about biotechnology. So we actually have have a, or other biotechnology companies, they have uh, offices that work directly with their health agencies in order to bring, bring them up to par with the technology and understanding how things work. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes they come up well, with questions we still have, we still receive questions from countries like, you know, Brazil or uh, Russia, uh, that they are asking questions which does not really apply to 
large molecules biotechnology but to the old-fashioned pharmaceutical you can tell they're coming from that perspective so we have to work with them and it is a lot of you know back and forth you have to go essentially you have to educate them about really this is not this is different from what you have been used to so going back to your uh, i just wanted to bring you to the uh, point that the agency is also evolving in terms of knowledge and the technology that is constantly evolving and being Mm -hmm. generated, created. So they have to be bringing themselves up. But again, at this point, they are, you know, there have been so many biotech companies, uh, successful biotech companies uh, since Genentech came to uh, being uh, that applications are so many of them are being done out there so agency is pretty skilled and learned about all of what what this technology is all about but the democracy part of it that you're talking about primarily the science is the determining factor Mm -hmm. we as the manufacturer as the developer have to show the agency that we are whatever we are doing is on a solid scientific ground and we support it with tons of experiments and documentation mm-hmm. that is why the agency is so uh, adamant about documentation mm-hmm. because everything you provide them with they want to be able to trace it back all the way to the first day the lab perform a test. So they can follow what experiment you did, how did the result turn out, you didn't manipulate the numbers, all of that has to be captured properly. And that is why GMP, good manufacturing practice, is the Bible, the heart of our uh, activities. This is something which captures all the elements and activities that go into development and of a material that comes, goes into the manufacturing and comes out. The quality of it has been evaluated and proven and shown to meet all the uh, specifications that has been set for it before the agency can uh, you know, make a judgment about it. You said GMP, good manufacturing good manufacturing practices. Yeah, that is really the heart of uh, any pharma or biotechnology company uh, when it comes to manufacturing. Okay. Yeah. This is all you know, fine details that go into whatever experiment you do before mm-hmm. you release a drug and release a material that you have to be able to trace everything that you have done from A to Z to the agency. Wow. Okay. So kind of leads me into the next area of interest is trust. So I hear a lot of distrust for one, the FDA and two, the big pharmaceutical industry. And can you say anything about that or do you see a way that we can help build trust? Now, to my knowledge, you know, no matter which company you are, of course, mm-hmm. if you're uh, 
you know, you have established your reputation, the integrity of your work, uh, you have far better relationship with the agency. They can trust your uh, data that you have generated mm -hmm. and you're presenting to them. If you are brand new, of course, they are going to be more skeptical, more questioning, and ask more questions from you. I'm, but, I'm thinking about trust between the public and the entire and process. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. That the agency essentially still. The principal, principal guideline is science. Mm -hmm. And their decision is based on the scientific factors. First of all, if what you're making is safe, that's primary thing that when you give, you give this medication to a patient, you're not gonna make the patient even sticker. That is the primary one. That's the first one. The second one is that the drug actually works. Mm -hmm. And that is why you have clinical studies that you perform. Thousands of patients go through these studies in order to show the agency that, yes, these are side effects, and you have to capture every side effect that you get out of a clinical study mm -hmm. and report it. They have to be captured. And how did the drug work with the patient? Um, what percent of the patients in this study successfully got positive results? And of course, we have, when you do clinical studies, you have placebos uh, that you want to have statistically show that there is a difference between what you have active drug in there or placebo, which doesn't have active drug. It is just the uh, excipients, mm -hmm. uh, which everything looks alike, but you have to show there is a major difference between the placebo result and your active drug. Mm -hmm. So once you meet that uh, endpoint, then which is a requirement that has been established, a statistical uh, requirement yeah. that is established. As far as the entire process goes, um, the science Science is the foundation of it. And as long as we trust the agency and the, the pharmaceutical companies that they are acting in integrity of developing something that is um, in the interest of humanity, um, yeah. we can trust yeah. the process. But I'm looking more at the, the it, with, with systems of authority, there's always a distrust or there's, there seems to be a distrust. It's like, okay, can we, can we uh, trust that these agencies and the pharmaceutical companies are acting in the be best interest of humanity? From, by talking to you, I, I, I get that. But what about the public? You know, how can well, we help? Just let me give you a good yeah. example of you know, our pandemic when the, drug, when the vaccine was in the development. And we know that the administration that we had in 2020, um, they were pushing and pushing these agencies, the CDC and the FDA, you have to uh, approve this drug. You have to approve it even before all those clinical studies were completed. Mm -hmm. But regardless of all those pressures, remember the agency did not approve the drug until 
those clinical, the phase three clinical studies mm -hmm. were completed and the reports were generated by the Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson and so forth. So we early 2021 was when the drugs were released for uh, public use. And that is an indicator that the health agencies, they were created in order to protect the safety of the population and the people. Mm -hmm. And that, that should be a good example of the fact that even under that political pressure that they were going, FDA is the main character here to decide, can this drug go to people or not? And they okay. did not go under that pressure. They did not give in under that pressure to let uh, the drug to be released before they had all mm -hmm. the data to the point that they could see it is safe and it is efficacious. So, yeah, I mean, so that, that is why I have mm -hmm. high level of respect for our agency, mm -hmm. for our FDA. And I've been, you know, as I said, over 30 years that I have been working in this industry and I have many interactions as a result of that. And I see the kind of questions they pose to you. And no matter how small of a company or large of a company you are, they treat you the same. Yeah, the only way, as I said, they might be uh, treat you differently is if you have uh, you have been a company that have been established with them, mm -hmm. that they know you very well, they know your practice, they have been at your site many times, many times, and they know your um, uh, ethics, they know their your process, then they would have less uh, concern uh, as far as digging into um, <clears throat> details and unlike a new company, right, brand right, new company right. that is just on the block. Yeah. Um, I give FDA, you know, high credit. Okay. I get that. For protecting us, yes. The other thing I was interested in is uh, transparency. How transparent is all this process? If somebody wanted to look up the details of a drug approval, would they be able to? Yeah, you can go at actually on the FDA uh, site mm -hmm. and every drug that is approved, all those information are being posted there. Nice. The people who made the decision based on what they make that decision and all of that, you can go and on their site. Yeah, it's public information. Okay. And then the other thing that you brought up that I wanted to know more about was animal testing. <clears throat> and hearing that, it kind of creates a, an emotional reaction in me, as I'm sure it does in other people. And I don't want to get into, you know, the, um, the details about that. But I was just curious if there's, if that is regulated. Yes, it is. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I, uh, I'm afraid I am not an expert on on that because I have never worked directly uh -huh. uh, uh, with uh, with those activities in the toxicology. That's where the animals are being used. So I I, I have just a um, high level understanding of uh, the animal use. Yeah, but they are regulated. There is regulation done because again, toxicology has to be reported to the agency, has to be approved by the agency. 
So those are how you treat the animals is regulated and uh, both by OSHA and as well as FDA that they have to be uh, treated in a certain way, in human way. Mm-hmm. And you have to raise these animals specifically for um, clean, you know, for for the purpose of the studies that you do. And so they would be free of disease. So the way you raise them, the way they uh, propagate them and all of those uh, are based on guidelines okay. uh, that has been dictated, yeah. Through OSHA and? FDA. FDA. What, what about PETA? Are they, do they get involved at all? PETA. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals? I am not sure, okay. to be honest. I am not sure. As I say, I don't have as much detailed information about okay. them. Yeah. But my now, from ethical aspect, you know, I have my own dilemma, actually, mm-hmm. because I, I cannot see any living creature getting hurt. Mm-hmm. That's my nature. I, that's why I won't ever be a toxicologist and work with animals and hurt animals. And uh, even though they try to be as humane as possible. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, we don't have any other alternative. Mm-hmm. We have the only way that we can show, first of all, how the drug is uh, metabolized in the physiological environment uh, is to use a living creature, a living entity, and uh, which is as close to our biology as possible. So they are, that's why we have to use them at this point. If we don't, if we had not, none of these drugs would have been able to come to market mm-hmm. to save so many human lives, I know. We're sacrificing the animals, certain number of animals, for saving lives of millions of people and humans. But this is the alternative, unfortunately, that we have had. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I know there are mm, steps being taken to utilize this approach less and less by coming up with models that can recreate the mm, essentially electronically by AI mm-hmm. and create the uh, system that can represent more or less biological living. So when you put a drug into that system, it can predict how it would interact with that system. But again, all of these are at baby steps. Right. But they are being done. And they're being developed by what's the what's the driving force behind that? Which 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 agency or? Well, pretty much even us, Genentech yeah. is doing that. We have a lot of uh, high tech scientists that we hire to do that kind of stuff to, to create modeling. Mm-hmm. First of all, you want to uh, see when we are talking about body uh, antibodies. The cells have a lot of receptors that each one of these receptors, these are like antennas sitting on top of the membrane of the cell. And each one of these antenna receptors has a specific function uh, responsible for, Mm -hmm. you know, like uh, 
when you when the when the cell needs food, insulin brings sugar, for example, and there is a receptor on the cell which attaches itself to insulin and essentially tells the cell open up the door, and it opens up the door, and the sugar molecule can enter the cell. So this is a mechanism of the cell communicating with this outside environment. Mm -hmm. So there are almost 100,000 receptors on each cell. So when we make a drug called antibody, what does antibody do is, you know, like uh, when it is a cancer cell, we're talking about, let's say, talk about a cancer cell that you want to destroy we come up with an antibody, which is a molecule, which has the capability to attach itself to one of those receptors on the cell, on the cancerous cell. And then when you do that, there are multiple mechanisms that uh, this molecule can act. One is to have a, a tail attached to it, a poison that would introduce that into the cell and kills the cell. Another one is that essentially you bring a T cell, your defensive system, come in and attaches itself to this spine receptor mm-hmm. and your defensive system, your killer cell essentially kills the, the cancerous cell. So what we are doing electronically, they are, they are doing is actually coming up with these models mm-hmm. to say, okay, what is the structure of this receptor? So what should the structure of my uh, antibody be? Because it mm-hmm. is like a lock and key. You know, the receptor is a key and antibody is a lock. Mm-hmm. Essentially, they have to fit into each other to bind together. So electronically, we're trying to come up with this model. What is the receptors on this face surface of the cell? And what is, as a result, what should the antibody structure be in order uh-huh. for these two to come it's, and bind together? Just based on the knowledge of the chemistry of the chemistry of yeah. the receptors that you they have can to build learn. artificial intelligence to hopefully yes. model it as close to possible as reality. Exactly. Yeah. No, it is. And so these are being worked on. So this is very critical because right now we have to do it by try and error. Right. More or less. And the trial and, is on and that's animals. why animals have come to come to play because then you want to see, yes, it is working or not. So if you do that, if you take those steps, you can prevent sacrificing many animals uh, for, for your uh, okay. initial studies. Okay. Like I said, I didn't want it. It sounds like the, the animal testing has the same emotional reaction for you as it does for me. It does. And it yeah. has for many, many of yeah. us as uh, people who work in this industry. That's why certain of us work, work where we work and not work with those animals. I mean, those people yeah. who work with animals, I give them a lot of credit because, uh, I mean, of course, there's a lot of them who work with uh, they're very passionate, take care of them. We have to work with primates, rabbit, and uh, mice, rats, mm. and dogs. 
So you have to show as much passion, compassion with them as you can. And there are a lot of compassionate, you know, most of them are young, uh, young kids actually who, who are maintaining oh. those animals. Yeah. Wow. That's intense. Yeah. So yeah. In, anyway, yeah, I just wanted mainly to know what kind of um, regulations there were around that and the systems of authority, once again, to, to regulate that. So thank you for answering that. Sure. So now I want to go off on a way, way tangent. And remember that thing we put a pin in a long time ago, <laughs> which I don't yeah. quite remember what it was, but the other day, microbiome. <laughs> <laughs> the other day we were uh, in Toastmasters together and I started to talk about ancient Mesopotamia. And I thought I saw you really light up when I mentioned that. And yeah, of yeah. course you're from that area of the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. What do you know about uh, ancient Mesopotamia and the the history of that. Well, well I mean, cradle of uh, civilization, you know, started yeah. you know, where uh, Euphrates and Tigris were. This is on the two river mm -hmm. that came to come together. That is northern part of Iraq. Mm -hmm. uh, this is where essentially the um, people of uh, ten thousand years ago, right after the Ice Age. Mm -hmm. essentially migrated from part of where India is right now and part of Europe, uh, the, which uh, they migrated and settled in that area and they started farming. And this is the first time really the civilization uh, formed uh, because people were not uh, just hunter and gatherers anymore, mm -hmm. settling they had farms, they had families, they had communities, and they had inventions. And you hear about all these different ages of mm, copper or uh, different metals that you hear about. And all of those originated from, from that point down. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about the civilization, really, you know, when Europe was in total darkness of um, in terms of civilization, this is where, you know, humans started to thrive. Mm -hmm. Invention of tools, food, animal uh, herd, and uh, domestication, and all of those started to happen there. So you, you and, have some, some knowledge in history and passion about this. Oh, yeah, yes, I guess I, I am a little bit uh, <laughs> prejudiced about it, you can yeah. say. Where, yeah. where where did you grow up? Iran. Iran. Yeah. So, yeah, and and you 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 hear as a you know a Persian, uh, we are very uh, passionate about past history. Of course, okay. forget about what is happening right now in my country, um, unfortunately. But you know, you know, uh, Cyrus the Great. You know, he was twenty five hundred years ago. He um, he had everywhere he went, his motto, his slogan was freedom and human rights. Everywhere he went oh. and captured, the first thing he would do is that people have to be, um, have, have to have their freedom of religion, mm. language, culture, everywhere he went. I haven't got that far in my study yet. Yes. Yeah. And actually, he has a tablet 
which is, you know, I have a picture of it up here. Oh. Yeah, which he actually, that tablet is talking about that, that he says, he claims, declares that he's king of the kings and so forth. And then he, he says people everywhere he, he goes, he says people have to have freedom of their religion, culture, language. And all he did, he actually, you know, uh, he would go, he, of course, they had to pay taxes as long as they paid their taxes. He had uh, so-called local uh, rulers mm -hmm. that he would make sure that the people were treated as he was expecting them to do. Mm -hmm. And you never in the history of Persia, you hear slavery. Oh. You hear about Romans, mm -hmm. Greeks, and of course, in the modern time, or Western yeah. countries. But in the history of this nation who ruled, you know, Persia was from Greece all the way to the territory of India then. Yeah. Imagine how big that uh, empire was. Huge. Never yeah. had, mm -hmm. never had slaves. Wow. Never. Yeah, I haven't got that far in my study. I got to the point where the there were several kings for each city state and we were just getting to the lecture where there was starting to be an empire so right but right. but to, but to back up to where we took that put that pin in that was the time from when they become became hunter gatherers to actual farmers yeah because yeah. that was the point where we started to modify food right right yes. then and That's true. they said that the the skeletal evidence from the people back then showed that when they went from hunter gatherers to farmers, that they actually became unhealthy. They became less healthy. Yep. And yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. When you when you are you are taking the environment away from the animals. Mm -hmm. That they, you know, they, they are not roaming freely, eating what they are naturally eating, and force feeding them with well, what you have available to them, and so forth. Yeah, you start, and not only that, this is the time that we started adversely impacting the environment, right? And Civilization, ourselves. essentially, right, started adversely impacting the environment, and uh. So that's why we are losing so many species uh, after civilization started. Right. Well, they actually showed that people started to settle as hunter-gatherers. And they would just settle in places where there were plenty, lots, lots of food, and they continued to be hunter-gatherers in settlements. But then at some point, they probably gradually over, you know, thousands of years or a thousand years or so they started to farm it did a lot of theories around it but one of them is that the food suddenly became scarce right. so they they had these settlements and then the food wasn't there and they had to make it on their own anyway that's a total side tangent but it did loop right back around to what we were talking about about eating healthy eating with nature yeah it, yeah and that's another uh, passion of mine right yeah eating well Healthy, yeah. Yeah. Healthy, yes.
part of my interest in studying the ancient Mesopotamia and any ancient culture is looking at the development, the relationship between the development of writing and the social structures. So that, that would be, you know, as, as writing developed, the social structures changed and did, did they have an impact on each other? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, I can see that, and um, that, that makes every sense. Yeah, 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 right. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you are interested in that area and about the civilization. Yeah, it's all it all ties together, and with what I'm looking at and doing now, besides, well, the democracy and the systems of authority, but also new technologies, the blockchain technology, and how how that's another evolution in technology that can the power back into the hands of the people. And yeah, I, I, I believe, of course, this is human nature, but eventually as human uh, being, we are gonna reach to a point that what we have as a, what we call greed, mm -hmm. is gonna fade away. You know, we, are, we will reach a point that none of these are going to be materialistically needed anymore right what what makes us greedy right now you want to have more you want to have more house car money food so on and so forth we will reach a point that none of those become an issue once you get to that point then it is a true involvement true involvement of human to really it is high level I so, you. Un yeah, until we get there, of course, we are going to have all these skirmishes and mm -hmm. uh, stupid wars and uh, competitions, uh, unhealthy competitions and uh, greed. But we will reach a point, hopefully, if we don't destroy ourselves, <laughs> we'll reach to a point that none of these are going to be even an issue. Once we get there, then the road is infinite. And I... I believe that I think two things that help bring that about is the uh, a supply chain distribution of goods around the world, communication and uh, yeah, communication, information technology is, as well. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And these are all the baby steps that we're taking exactly. towards that direction. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, that's what I'm up to. So part of, part of that is understanding how, how we evolve. Uh, from from the hunter gatherers to hierarchies and kingdoms, and some of which may not have been as benevolent as the Persian Empire, which I haven't got to in my studies yet, but uh, in in and so forth to what we have now and where it can go in the future. Absolutely, it's and all tied together. Absolutely, absolutely, nothing is independent. None. Exactly. None whatsoever on this in this universe. <laughs> in this universe, everything is interconnected. Perfect. Okay. Well, I think we uh, have reached a good stopping point. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to be again here and talk to you. It has been uh, a nice conversation, actually. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Discussed. And maybe, yeah, very much so, yeah. maybe we'll find something about. Uh, Mesopotamia to talk about. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Okay. 
look forward to that, uh, Jay. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Okay. And thank you. Thank you for our listeners being here. We will continue this podcast mission to bring more topics related to democracy as well as systems of authority and technologies, as we have discussed thoroughly with Saeed here on all levels. We cast a wide net to bring in information from a variety of sources with the intention of shedding light in every corner and illuminating a broad, deep understanding of the systems that exist past and present to envision and take action towards a more peaceful future. Visit truedemocracy.global.com.